Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy and I am pleased to bring to you Sefer Eov, the book of Job, chapter 31. This chapter continues where the last one left off. Uh, as Eov takes a series of oaths that his behavior was always exemplary. It's a long chapter, 40 verses, so I'll try to keep up a good pace. What we should be looking for in this chapter is the following. First, a vow, which will usually begin with either the word im, meaning I never, or imlo, meaning I surely did. The second thing is a statement that even though Eov swears he did good, he has been paid back not good from God. Number three um, is that Eov says if he had done some evil, if he had broken his vow, then he would accept the described punishment. But number four, the fourth item that we're going to be looking at, and I'll mention it as we go on, is I think the most important one because it's brand new here. Eov finally explains to us why he avoided evil and why he always did good things. The first vow is not so much of a vow, but really a recollection of a metaphoric covenant that he made with his eyes, namely, Berit karati al I made a covenant with my eyes that I wouldn't think about or consider virgins. It's a little unclear what he means here, since there's no problem with being intimate with a virgin, with somebody who's not married to somebody else, assuming, of course, that we just avoid the whole premarital sex issue for now. Um, it's being intimate with somebody else's wife that is a sin. And in fact, he will discuss adultery later on in verse 9. So Rashi essentially says that we are talking about adultery here, but Eov is reinforcing his anti-adultery vow by saying that in fact he wouldn't even let himself look at any non-attached woman, uh, not just other people, or any woman that weren't directly attached to him, and not just, uh, um, and not just married women. Ramban says, in a, I think, I think a slightly more realistic way, a slightly less ascetic way, that Eov says that he simply would not stare at women for no other reason than, uh, focusing on their beauty, that he would avoid that kind of behavior. The next verse can be taken as a complaint. So if I never misuse my eyes towards woman, why has God punished me? But I think what we're going to see is that he's saying something totally new, which I mentioned in the introduction. He's going to mention something that he's going to repeat over and over again in this chapter. He's not explaining that God has punished him. He's explaining why he would distance himself from the spoken, from the sin that he mentioned, because the fear of retribution kept him from doing so. Or as we say, Yirat Hashem, the fear of God. And what, or perhaps, because what will be the lot from God above and what will be the inheritance from Shaddai on high? And again, in my opinion, Yob is not talking about his suffering here. He's explaining that he never looked at a woman inappropriately because he wanted to avoid the negative consequences of having to deal with God when God came knocking at the door for his inappropriate actions. Isn't it true that disaster comes to the sinner and estrangement comes to those who do bad things? Isn't it true that he will see all my ways? 
uh, or see my ways, and he will count all my steps. Meaning, if I would dare do any of the bad things that I've just mentioned, or the things I'm going to mention, God will take me to task for it. I can't hide anything from it. He'll know exactly where I stepped and what I did. And therefore, Eov says that he was religious because he feared retribution from God. Now, I'm going to leave it for you to decide if this is the author's criticism against Eov. Is one supposed to avoid evil because of some expected negative consequences? Or is one supposed to avoid evil because it's the wrong thing to do? Another vow. I never walked with dishonesty. Again, remember the word im doesn't mean if. It means I swear that I never. I never walk with dishonesty and I never hurried my feet to trickery. This probably has to do with his being a judge, especially considering the word shav, uh, which it comes up in the Ten Commandments, lo shav, don't testify falsely against your, uh, neighbor or your, uh, friend or, or your compatriots. So essentially he's vowing that he did appropriate behavior um, in chapter 9, he asserted that he did appropriate behavior as a judge, and here he is vowing to it, he's stepping it up one step. Yishkeleni b'mozne tzedek v'yeda eloah tumati. Based on this vow, Eov calls on God for justice. Let him, God, weigh me in, this, in just scales, then he will know that I am without a flaw, that is, without sin. Of course, we already know that God that God knows that he's without sin, because God said that he saw that he was without sin, and all of this is simply a test. But uh, Eov doesn't know that. Another vow. And as I've mentioned before in biblical poetry, sometimes we need to borrow a word from one part of the poetic line to the other parts of the poetic line. In this case, we have to borrow the word im, uh, the swearing word that I never did something. Uh, we have to kind of copy and paste it to the other two parts of the line. Therefore, we get the following translation. Thus, my steps have never swerved from the way, meaning the right way. My heart, really my thoughts, Libi, have never strayed after my eyes, which is a clear reference to the Shema prayer, Lo and getting back to the verse, and nothing has ever stuck to my hand, meaning probably that he never took a bribe or anything else to increase his wealth. This seems to be a complaint uh, that given his exemplary behavior, he says, I sow, meaning I sow seeds, and someone else eats, meaning eats the produce, and my offspring are uprooted. And I think that the entire verse is a metaphor, as indicated by the word se'etza'ai, my offspring, which means the seeds are really representing his children, but they were eaten, meaning they were destroyed by his enemies. Um, on a grammatical note, a kind of an interesting grammatical note, uh, the word lisharesh, yishorashu, in the PL form is a privative verb, meaning it doesn't add something, it takes away something, meaning the roots are not added into the ground, they are removed from the ground. Lisharesh means to remove the roots. It's sort of like in English when you say, I shelled a nut, it doesn't mean I put on the shelf, it means I took off the shelf. In biblical Hebrew, if you want to say you put in roots, you don't say lisharesh, but you do it with the hifil lehashrish. 
Anyway, back to the uh, verses. Im and now another vow, which gets back to the women issue. As, as I mentioned, he would deal with adultery right here. My heart was never seduced by a woman, meaning a married woman, who wasn't married to him, and I never laid an ambush at the door of my friend, which means I never stole uh, somebody's wife out from under them. Because if I did, let my wife be ground by another person. I'm sorry that sounds so explicit, but unfortunately the word litchan, which means to grind, has a direct sexual meaning in, in English, even though in biblical Hebrew it's somewhat less explicit and metaphoric in its nature. On the other hand, the second part of the verse is very explicit, even in biblical Hebrew. And if I did these things, if I cheated on other people with other people's wives, let others bend over her, um, uh, that is, bend over my wife. Now, why such a gruesome, explicit, even though it's a fairly balanced punishment, what I did to other people, other people should do to my wife. Um, so, essentially, he explains, ki hizima v'hu avon plilim, because it, meaning allowing oneself to be seduced is evil and it meaning seducing some other man's wife that is both sides of the coin is a twisted sin in Mishnahic Hebrew avon plili means a criminal sin but I'm going to translate the word plili literally as being twisted uh, but the, the sense is the same a really really bad sin now, why is it such a terrible thing to be seduced or to seduce another man's wife? Because ki he ad avadon tochel Because it seduction adultery is like a fire that consumes until one's death, or really maybe it means to it brings it consumes you until it brings on one's death, and all my produce will be uprooted. Again, this is a uh, metaphor for his children, and it matches the metaphor that we saw in verse 8, which there was a complaint. So perhaps the sense is, had I committed adultery, I can understand my children being lost and uprooted. But since I didn't, then it shouldn't have happened to me. Im emas mishpat avdi v'amati berivam imadi. Another vow, I never avoided and discussed the justice of my servants, and I stood up for the dispute of my maidservant. This seems to focus on Eo's character as a, as a master of indentured servants. Uh, whenever his indentured servants had a complaint about the way he was treating them, and of course, in that case, you know, who are you going to complain to? The only person you complain to is the same person that's mistreating you. Uh, rather than ignoring it, which he could have done because, you know, who cares what the slave says about me, uh, Eov took it seriously and listened to their complaints. He stood up with them, so to speak, in court and allowed them to have their say and allowed, uh, and allowed a real injustice to be fixed. And without question, there's a hint here that he, Eov, as God's humble servant, should get the same treatment from his master that is God. But it's only a hint. Because, as I've said before, we've gotten to the point in Eov's speech that he's not so in-your-face like against God, like we heard in his discourse with his three friends, with his three visitors. He's criticizing, but in a much more subtle way. I never, when I was a master of slaves, and they took their complaint to me, and I could have just forgot the whole thing because I'm in charge of everything, but I didn't do that. So, hint, 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 but it's only a hint. And why did he listen to the complaints of his servants? Again, 
fear of God. Then, had I done these things, what would I do when God would arise, when he would take me to task? How would I answer him? So to avoid the confrontation against God, he avoided sin against his fellow man, against his slaves. Here, however, or, in the, or I should say in the next verse, in verse 15, Eo finally gives us kind of a more positive reason for his wanting to do the right thing regarding these slaves, and then we could apply that to his philosophy in general. Halo vabeten oseni osahu vayechunenu barechamechad. Isn't it true that in the same stomach that he, God, made me, he also made him the servant, and he prepared us both in the same womb. Now, he doesn't mean literally in the same womb. That is, he's not talking about his brother being his slave or servant. But what he is saying is that he recognizes that his servants are human beings. They're born with unalienable rights to be heard when they have complaints and to be treated, and that their complaints be treated justly, and that not doing so will incur the wrath of God. So Eov never did it. So there's the positive aspect. I recognize the humanity of people who are lower than me. And there's the negative side that if I don't recognize it, God will smite me down. Again, you must decide whether the positive or the negative motivations, which one is predominant. But for now, let's move on to the next vow regarding his overall demeanor and behavior towards those far less fortunate than he. Im emna. I never prevented the delight or removed the delight of the poor, and I never dimmed the eyes of the widow. So we have to borrow the word, the oath word, im, from the previous verse to this verse, and we get, uh, I never ate my bread by my lonesome. And again, borrowing the word low and connecting it with the word, I'm sorry, borrowing the word im and connecting it with the word low, we get im low, which is a positive swearing. Orphans did, I swear orphans did eat from it, meaning from the bread that I just mentioned in the first section of the verse. Indeed, from my youth, he, the servant, grew up with me as if I was a father to them, and from my mother's womb, I guided her. Her probably refers to the widow from two verses ago. A new vow. I never bore the sight of a lost person without making sure he was dressed. Nor did I bear the sight of a needy person without cover, because again, the poor and the needy wasn't like today where they could, you know, find clothes in a in a clothes bin set aside for the poor. They they walked around in rags. They were rags. They were truly, uh, you know, lost. This is a positive imlo vow, which means I swear that their I, that their loins did bless me, which means probably that because Eo made sure their loins were covered, um, it, therefore his, their, their loins uh, blessed him. That is, they, you know, they appreciated uh, what it was that he did for them. Getting back to the verse, and I swear that they warmed themselves by the shearing of my sheep, which means when I sheared my sheep, I didn't keep all the profits to myself. I made sure that a portion of it went to... Uh, um, uh, 
you know, sewing or knitting uh, uh, clothes for the poor and the needy. Im hanifoti al yatom yadi kierev ashar ezrati. I vow that I never wave my hand against the orphan when I saw my helper at the gate. The idea of waving one's hand can have a negative, aggressive connotation. Uh, it, the classic example of that is in the book of Isaiah when Sancherev, in his march against the land of Israel, waves his hands against Jerusalem in a preparation to destroy it. Now, the second part of the sentence, when I saw my helper at the gate, I think what he means here is that even though he had the support of his co-workers of his peers who sat at the gate because they were his fellow judges and leaders of the people. So he had all of this like positive reinforcements from his friends who may have said, eh, just a poor guy, you know, we don't care what happens to him. But he refused to use that peer support to support his aggressiveness or dismissiveness against um, essentially what would have been doing safe injustice against these poor because he had full backing of everybody. Um, but he didn't bow to peer pressure, so to speak, and he did the right thing. And what he says now is that if he did do this thing, if he did break his vow, if he was mistreating in all these ways the people who are on a lower status, a very needy status from the status that he's on, he says that is if he did wave his hands aggressively at people simply because he could, because he knew he would never get caught for it, let my upper arms fall out from the shoulders and my arms should be broken from their sockets. And again, once again, he overturns to the why he never did these things. Because the fear of God sent disaster is with me. And I cannot manage against his burden, i.e. the burden that he would set upon me for my sin, the punishment. Now again, it's possible to translate this as a complaint. Oh, why did God send all these bad things against me? Much like he did during the discourse. But, you know, as I said over and over again, just reading the verses, that's not how it seems. This is not a complaint at all. He's not focusing on the complaint of what God did to him. He's just trying to explain why he didn't commit these sins. Why, had he done so, his arms would have fallen out of his sockets because he was afraid that that's what God would do in retribution. I vow that I never put my confidence in gold and I never considered fine gold to be my security. This probably refers to never taking bribes in courts or, or maybe what he's saying metaphorically is that he avoided the ego uh, the absolute power corrupts absolutely that, uh, that occasionally, or I should say probably often, accompanies great wealth. Um, and that kind of fits the, fits the next vow. If he's just talking about not allowing his sense of self-wealth to make him su- to feel superior to everybody else, im esmach ki rav yadi. I vow that I never took pleasure when my wealth increased. And I never took, uh, and, and, and nor when my the profits of my hands became great. This vow is a kind of a new topic. It's talking about, or seems to be talking about, idol worship. Uh, remember that according to Jewish tradition, idol worship for non-Israelites is also a sin. It's a Noahide crime. Uh, so therefore, it's not at all strange that Eov, who is being portrayed here as a non-Jew, as I mentioned in the first 
session that uh, he seems to be an Edomite prince and king or of some sort, a leader. Um, he also has responsibilities in Jewish literature and Jewish thinking, and he is also not allowed to worship um, a false god. So he says, I never looked at light when it's, when it's shown, uh, the assumption is from the sun, and at the beaming glow of the moon. Now, don't worry. <laughs> Simply looking at the sunbeams and the moonbeams is not uh, is not an avodazar. It's not idol worship. It only becomes a problem when one also does what he describes in the following verse: Vayift baseiter libi vatishak yadi lifi. And my mind became seduced in secret by the sun and the moon, and I touched my hand to my lips. Now apparently one would hold up one's hand to the source of an idol or touch the idol and then kiss one's hands to one's lips. Um, when God, there's a, a story, there's a, a recalling of what happened when uh, Eliyahu uh, was uh, fighting against the uh, Baal worship that was prevalent in the time of King Ahab in the book of Kings, chapter 19. So God spoke to Eliyahu about destroying uh, Jewish Israelite Baal worshippers, and he defines them as all the knees that bent to him, the Baal, and all the lips that kissed him. So this was apparently part of the worship. Um, another grammatical note, the preposition lamid, following uh, the verb kiss, lunasheik le, implies a kiss using an intermediary of one's hand. That is not a direct kiss of lips, but kissing one's hand and then and then uh, uh, and kissing and then using that that hand to then make connection or to take a hand and to kiss the hand, but not directly kiss the lips. Um, this kind of chaste kissing is exactly what takes place in the famous story of, Ray, uh, of uh, Jacob when he meets Rachel. So if you take a look there, and at the commentaries, you'll see that the Lamed is in use. L'nashek leh. Gam hu avon plili ki chichashti la'el mimal. This, meaning sun and moon worship, um, is also a twisted sin because I would be denying God above. And again, he explains why he would never do it because he would be denying God above. And again, either it's the fear of God or the love of God which is preventing him from doing the sin and you have to make uh, the call, I think. Im esmach befid misanei v'hit orarti ki mitzao ra. Uh, this is a new vow. I never took pleasure in the disaster of those whom I hate. I never became excited when they had bad things befall them or literally find them. Now, I have to say, I'm inserting myself here a little bit. Um, I know Rabbi Liebtag told me, uh, warned me never to, uh, that a teacher always runs the risk of inserting his own opinions into uh, Eov's opinions. But here I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to say that Eov is a far better man than me because for the first time in this chapter, I wouldn't even venture making this vow. I'm pretty sure that in my life I've wished some pretty bad evil on people who I find repugnant. Uh, you know, like when uh, one uh, sees... Uh, I don't know, when some of the stuff that Yasser Arafat did or Ahmadinejad and, and we say, boy, I hope God gets, you know, I hope they get theirs. I hope God smites them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to turn this into a self-confession here, but I'm, it's very amazing that Eov made this vow and now continues as follows. I did not allow my mouth to sin by asking for a curse upon him. Okay, that's great. Um, a new vow. This positive vow, it's an imlo vow, is on a brand new subject and essentially goes like this. 
I vowed that the people in my tent would say, quote, if only we would never get filled up from his, from his meat. Meaning, Eov gave all of his house guests such good food and such plentiful food that they prayed that they would never get hungry so they would always keep eating and eating and eating. Sort of uh, like at a smorgasbord before a, uh, a chup at a wedding. You know, there's so much good food that it becomes like, uh, you know, you feel bad when you get full because there's, you know, more and more food to be had. A sojourner would never sleep outside, meaning outside of my house, and my doors I always open to guests. Yes, this is just like Abraham, and exactly not like the people of Stom and Amorah who let people sleep in the streets, and worse. I vow that I never cut up, covered up my sins like Adam, meaning Adam the first. I never buried my iniquities in my hiding places. And as I mentioned, this is talking about Adam's sin in eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the reason why we know that Eov, or the author of Eov, is referencing it is because it says that there that Adam hid in the trees of the garden, Vayich uh, and it uses the same word Chabad to hide, which is used here, Litmon bechubi avoni. This is, in my opinion, the second reference to Adam, uh, that is the original man, uh, described in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and then a little more than that. And um, the first time was the end of chapter 28, and the second time is here. Ki erot hamon rabah, or actually before I go to the next verse, I should mention it, it kind of fits in because Adam is not Jewish. Adam is a universal person grappling with what God demands and grappling with the idea of sin and punishment and exile. Um, so it fits that Eov would be referencing Adam as a universal, uh, um, uh, you know, as a universal prehistory of what he's going through. Ki erot hamon rabah uvuz mishpachot yechiteni va'edom lo etzeit patach. And now he is surely complaining. That is, we've finally gotten to probably the most direct complaint that we've had all chapter. That now, considering everything I did for all of these people who are less fortunate than me, and now that I should fear the masses, erot hamon rabah, that family's ridicule should break me, that I should be silent, afraid to exit from my front door, so we return to complaint. However, we really don't have that aggressive complaint against God that we saw Eov doing before. Essentially, he's simply crying, it's just not fair, God. Look at all the things I did. I just don't deserve this measure for measure. Now, we have a new vow, but it begins with a request similar to Eov's previous request. But again, it's more positive once we consider the vow in the verse that follows it. So bear with me as I move from this verse to the next verse. If only someone would listen to me. Here is my sign. That is, look what I've written down about myself. If only Shaddai, that is God, would answer me and a book would be written by my disputant, by the person who I need to come to a dispute within court. Now, of course, he's talking about God, and he even says Ishrivi, but I, I don't think he's calling uh, God a man. Ishrivi is simply an idiom, which means the person who who, uh, who accuses me in court. So what he's saying is, God should make it official and write a subpoena or some kind of official list of my alleged criminal activity. He's begging that God shows up in court, as he did before. But as we see, instead of getting bitter about it, he says things that are surprisingly positive. Imlo, he swears, 
Imlo al shichmi esa'enu, en denu atarotli. I swear that I will bear it. That is, I will bear these legal written accusations on my shoulders. I will bind it as it crowns for myself. That is, I'll wrap it around my head and show how proud of I am. Eov would so appreciate being able to understand what God is doing and why God is doing. He would appreciate God telling him exactly what he, Eov, did wrong. That just that appreciation would cause him to wear the accusations with pride. If only God would come to the table and reveal himself and his purpose, Eov would take it like a man and even take it like a king. He would pretend to be a king whose crown of glory were the sins that he uh, is accused of. Then I will tell him the number of my steps and like a prince I would approach him, which means I think it's a difficult verse, but I think the sense is that Eov would be proud to raise his head high again and take confident steps. He would assert his innocence because at least he'd have a piece of paper that he could argue with. And, uh, just now, and, and the reason why I think he's saying that if I had this, not only would I be proud that at least you're you know, telling me what it is you did, but I would have the ability to respond to it. And the reason why I'm saying that is because of the next verse, he returns to the idea that he is, without question, innocent. I vow that my land never screamed out against me and that all the furrows in the land never cried out. I vow that I never ate her produce, literally her strength, without payment, and I never breathed out anger at her owners. Now, this might be understood on a literal level, which means he never uh, stole other people's lands, he never uh, he never did crimes on those lands of those fields, whether it was his or whether somebody else's. But the truth is, I think that this is covering up a, a metaphoric sense. If you remember in chapter 16, Eov was vociferous in saying that he, if he was guilty at all, Obviously, he was saying he wasn't guilty, so he was challenging God. If I'm guilty at all, Eretz al-Chasi He said that in chapter 16, which meant, let the earth not cover up my blood. And in a reference to the Cain and Hevel story, don't let the screams of my victims be contained. That is, let them ring out the fact that I'm guilty, but I'm not, Eov says. And it's a challenge against God. So what Eov, I think, metaphorically is vowing here is that there is no hidden blood of innocence, either on his own property, meaning in his own actions, or in the property of others, meaning in the way he acted towards others. And if his vow is false, and he did do these things, and the land should scream up because of the sins that he committed, then, tachat v'sha. Instead of wheat, let thistles grow, let rotten growths replace the barley. And again, I believe that that there's a literal sense here, but also a metaphoric sense. Literally, if I misused and stole fields, then let the fields go fallow beneath me. Let my let me have no green thumb. But I think that there are actually two levels of metaphor here. And one, which is finally coming out at the very end of his speech, is actually connected to the land of Israel and the people of Israel. And in fact, there may be a deep metaphor running through the whole book of Eov. On one hand, the book of Eov is universal in its discourse, in its, in its discussion and grappling with the problems of theodicy, which are not only Jewish problems, but they're worldwide problems. But on the other hand, this is a Jewish written book. And the Jews have just been exiled, because as I mentioned in the first uh, chapter, I believe this book was written shortly after the exile of uh, the fall of the first temple. 
um, the Jews have been exiled, and um, they are dealing with a very specific theodicy, not just a universal one, but they have a very real problem of theodicy on their hands. That is, the fact that a bunch of sinful, a nation of sinful, idol-worshipping, violent Babylonians are completely successful because of their sins in the destruction that they're wreaking on Israel. So Eov, in fact, may be a deep metaphor who is speaking for the entire Judean nation and saying, hey, if I misuse the land, and if I misuse the people on the land, then let the land lay fallow. I deserve the exile that I got. But if I didn't behave in that way, then I don't. But as Eov has said before, you know, he, he really doesn't think he's guilty. And therefore, he doesn't believe the punishment is deserved. Now, whether he is a metaphor for the Jewish people or a metaphor for all uh, of the uh, of universal people, of all the people, Jewish and non-Jewish, everywhere grappling with the issue of theodicy, and whether he's also speaking as a literal person dealing with these very specific problems, or all of the above, it all fits in very nicely to the verses. Um, understand it any way you want, but the bottom line is, Tamu Divrei Iov which means the word of Eov, or the words of Eov, the speeches of Eov have come to an end. Eov will say a few more things in response to God's speeches later on, but essentially, Eov has said everything he's needed to say, and he's vowed everything that he can manage to vow. So the rest is up to God.